Hey, everybody. It's Tim. This is the honorable. Sorry, my dog's up here with me right now. So uh, heads up. Uh, apologies if uh, she makes a noise during this. I can't tell her to stop, though. So we. this is the honorable. This is how we do things here. We're coming up on the end of the year. So I'm trying to get a couple more in real quick before January 1st. I think I'm pretty much caught up now because uh, this is how we do things here five movies, and then I pick which ones go on my honor roll, which is the group of movies that I will pick my top 10 from at the end of the year. We have got a pretty good list of movies here, um, I think. <laughs> I don't remember. Let me honest with you, I don't remember. It's been, it's been a busy couple weeks. Let's start with a good one, though. Let's start with Last Night in Soho. An aspiring fashion designer is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s where she encounters a dazzling wannabe singer. But the glamour is not all it appears to be, and the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something darker. Directed by Edgar Wright, written by Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson Cairns, starring Thomas and McKenzie, Anna Joy, Anna Taylor Joy, excuse me, and Matt Smith, who I believe is a doctor. I don't remember. I don't remember if he's a doctor or not. Now that I think about it, uh, the Whovians. Is that the, even the name of the Doctor Who fans? I'm just going to stop right now before I get myself into even more trouble. Nostalgia. Very hot button issue recently. I think it's probably the new Ghostbusters movie that has brought this up. I haven't seen it yet as of this recording. I have plans to see it. Uh, but it is uh, Nostalgia has been brought on. I think that movie has brought on a lot of this conversation regarding it. And it's nothing new. Um, I want to say before I get too deep into this, I think that with that movie, there's in certain other movies, there's been critical reaction in certain circles that I think can be tied back to the, the insane overreaction to that 2016 Ghostbusters. And I think it's funny where this reaction is coming from and why it's coming from now. Uh, not to name names here, but I've seen some like kind of insane screeds against nostalgia and movies. And I mean, who... Why do you think this has come about? I mean, this has been going on for 10 years where the box office has been dominated by stuff that I, I liked as a kid. It is what it is at this point. And I remember some of these writers and how they used to write for Ain't It Cool News. And I remember what they used to cover. And I know how the game is played here. You have to make money and get your hits reviewing and providing scoops for franchise franchises like Ghostbusters or Star Wars or the Marvel movies. But, you know, stuff that people have nostalgia for. But like some of these reviews I'm reading on that movie and some of the other movies, it feels like they feel like they're Dr. Frankenstein and they've created some monster. Well, I mean, I don't want to let's not give yourself too much credit here. I will. Um, I find that whole thing very amusing. And sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent to start things off. I will be clear with my feelings with regards to nostalgia. I think it's fine in the correct amount like anything nostalgia is fine in moderation and with the recognition that the past wasn't always perfect or for the better i'm going to defend myself uh because i did uh five minutes of googling to do so and i I found a new york times article titled what is nostalgia good for quite a bit research shows uh most people this is taken from that article most people report experiencing nostalgia at least once a week and nearly half experience it three or four times a week these reported bouts are often touched off by negative events and feelings of loneliness but people say nostalgizing nostalgizing (laughs) 
I think that's it's in quotes, so I don't think it's a real word. Uh, researchers distinguish it from reminiscing helps them feel better. Nostalgic stories aren't simple exercises in cheeriness, though. The memories aren't all happy, and even the joys are mixed with a wistful sense of loss. But on the whole, the positive elements greatly outnumber the negative elements. As the Southampton researchers found by methodically analyzing stories collected in the laboratory, as well as a magazine named Nostalgia. Okay, well, uh, here's a quote from a doctor. So not just from me. I've got a doctor backing me up here. Nostalgic stories often start badly with some kind of problem, but then they tend to end well thanks to help from someone close to you, the doctor says. So you end up with a stronger feeling of belonging and affiliation, and you become more generous towards others. So there you go. There's my there's my half-hearted defense of nostalgia after a couple minutes of Googling and reading articles. This very long winded introduction brings me to Last Night in Soho from Edgar Wright, which takes place in current day London and also 1960s London. It jumps back and forth between the two the two time periods. Right in interviews, he's talked about being nostalgic for a time that you didn't belong to and how how kind of odd that is and how it's how it's kind of human uh, to do that. Something that is exemplified in this uh, by the main, film's main character of Ellie, who becomes kind of obsessed with Sandy and a woman she sees in her dreams making her way through 1960s London. All of the London scenes, the flashback scenes, especially early, are presented in kind of lush, vivid detail. The first glimpse of London, it really is a shock to the system, like Alice entering Wonderland and the bright lights blind you. And there's this great shot where she enters enters the kind of the square there where a marquee from Thunderball, the James Bond movie, looms over her as she steps into the city. It's huge, and it kind of looks down on her. This shot pretty much sums up everything about Last Night in Soho and what it's saying. It's it's kind of brilliant in that way. It's gorgeous, first of all. You can't help but feel to be kind of transported in a twinge of astonishment at the post-war swinging 60s London. You want to be there, and you want to see Thun- Thunderball in that theater with the crowd. But... Uh, here's what they don't mention. Thunderball is boring as hell. And more importantly, while James Bond was and still is seen as a hero by many, there are aspects of Bond movies that don't hold up real well and are littered with misogyny and and the attitudes that kind of force Sandy down the path that, that she will eventually go on. And here's where I'm going to do, I'm going to give a quick spoiler warning. Uh, big spoilers coming up for the movie. So if you haven't seen it, jump out now and go watch it because I, I really liked it. That Bond archetype will always loom over Sandy and people like her. And while it's okay to long for the past, it's also important not to get lost in it and not get lost in the bright lights. And remember that there's a darker side to these things as well. You could argue that much like some of these um, film writers who celebrated Edgar Wright coming up, especially in the 2000s, and I'll touch on that a little bit later, you could argue that Wright has made a career out of trafficking in nostalgia or at least nods to other movies i don't necessarily agree with that but i think it could be i mean you've got Shaun of the dead obviously with its nods to romero and plenty of other movies um hot fuzz features nods to bad boys 2 and wicker man and josie wales scott pilgrim is littered with video game references those are kind of his early the first half of his career at this point I don't think these references are member berries. I think they serve their purpose, but I think this movie represents a step forward and kind of a conversation with himself. And I think it has a lot to say about kind of killing your idols, your heroes as well. So big time spoilers. Now this movie ends with what I took the final font the title screen comes up and you go into the end credits and it looks exactly like the Woody Allen kind of title font. If you've seen a Woody Allen movie, 
or it, even a poster, I think you can kind of recognize the font. And that was the first thing that popped into my head when I, when I saw Last Night in Soho and then the end credits. I have to think this was on purpose. Um, I came up on the internet in the message boards in the 2000s, and I remember there being, I guess, kind of a handful of internet darlings, for lack of a better term. And Edgar Wright was on there, and he was compared a lot of the times to someone like, I mean, there's plenty of nerd, nerd figures you compare to, but one of them was Woody Allen. And I think that's who I'll focus on. But I mean, if, if you want to go down this road, you could, he was compared a lot of the times to uh, like a Joss Whedon or someone. But, um, and also Edgar Wright recently listed his top 1000 movies. And I think seven of them were Woody Allen. You can see his influence all over Edgar Wright's work, especially in Shaun of the Dead as well. Um, 2021, and a few years recently have been a reckoning for some of what I would refer to as, uh, oh, there's my dog, uh, nerd icons or icons in the film nerd intelligentsia set as well, or maybe not even icons, but people with a lot of power and success. In this movie, you see Ellie and she is, we, we go with her as she kind of digs into Sandy's past and digs underneath the surface of 1960s London. And she finds out, that her hero in Sandy is is a very flawed hero, to say the least, and a very flawed person who has done some bad things. That doesn't kill her, though. It doesn't make her stop chasing her dream. Instead, she maintains those influences and spins them into her own work. And that's art. And I think that's what this movie is trying to say about art. There's an interesting question that comes up when artists like a Woody Allen have done some or have been accused of or have done some sometimes awful and unforgivable things. How you react to that and how as a fan or how as an artist who has been influenced by them, how you move forward knowing that artistic influence from a bad person will always be there. The best you can do is take their art that has inspired you and make it your own. And that's what the character does in this movie. And I think that ties into what I was saying a little bit earlier about nostalgia as well. It's okay to recognize the good and the bad of a time period or what's important from that time period and what you want to take with you or even a figure of that time period and take inspiration from it. It can connect to your work. It can connect to you, but you have to be careful when you do that and you have to make sure to make it your own thing. And I do think this is kind of a step into the second half of Edgar Wright's career where he's going to go ahead and make it his own thing. Is this on the honor roll? Absolutely. I love this. Uh, this is probably going to make my top 10. It's probably going to be high up there. So, oh, I rented this. This is on a, this is a theater rental. So there you go. So I am going to talk about the night house. A widow begins to uncover her recently deceased husband's disturbing secrets. Directed by David Bruckner. Written by Ben Collins and Luke Piotrowski. Starring Rebecca Hall, Sarah Goldberg, and Vondi Curtis Hall. This is, yeah, David Bruckner, who recently did The Ritual. He also worked on The Signal. He's done some work, I believe, on the VHS. I know he's done work on Southbound, that anthology movie as well. The first half of this movie really, really hit the spot for me. Rebecca Hall is terrific, as always, playing kind of the grieving widow. It's study of grief and how people process it and how those around them do their best to help and sometimes fail to help because sometimes you just can't. You can't help enough. There, Those are the moments where the film's best moments lie. 
It's got some 70s ghost story elements to it, kind of haunted house throwback elements, burnt offerings, the Sentinel, uh, let's scare Jessica to death is what kind of popped into my head while watching this. I don't think it sticks to the landing. I liked the first half better. Once the mystery started to unravel, it did lose me a bit. Not that the mystery is bad, but I did find the first half kind of that was that dealt a little bit more with her dealing with the grief of her husband's death, a little bit more engaging. I kind of wanted to talk about Hellraiser, though. And the reason I want to do that is there are two upcoming Hellraiser projects in development. David Bruckner, the director of The Night House, is making a movie for Hulu that he said will be using the Hellbound Heart as a primary source of inspiration. And David Gore Green, director of the two most recent Halloween movies and the upcoming Halloween Ends, and of course, Pineapple Express, All the Real Girls, he's developing an HBO series with Michael Doherty, Mark Verheiden, and Clive Barker serving as an executive producer. I think David Gordon Green is a little bit of a weird fit for Hellraiser. And even with the involvement of Clive Barker, I'm actually more excited for the Bruckner version of Hellraiser. First of all, the David Gordon Green version is a television series, so I'm kind of immediately skeptical of TV series, streaming series, just because I don't think it's the best medium for horror storytelling. I think some have worked really well. I think others have felt stretched out. I think horror works a lot of the time because of its immediacy. And I've said before, I'm a believer in a good, tight, 90-minute horror movie. I'm this way with books as well. I think the argument could be made that horror works best in a short story novella form than it does in a longer form. I think a lot of the times those scares and those sequences kind of feel dragged out. The Hellbound Heart, which Hellraiser is based on, is a 180-page novella. I'm also not super interested in a ton of backstory on the way the Cenobite mythology works. What works for me in both versions of the story of Hellraiser, it's kind of the visceral thrills and the sensual quality of it all. And I think that might get lost if we get bogged down in the details. Also, I like David Gordon Green a lot. I think he's, I personally think he's done a great job with the Halloween series. I know that's a controversial take after the last one, but I liked it quite a bit. He's worked some work some current elements in it as well, but Hellraiser feels like a really weird fit for him. He's made a career of kind of telling smaller stories, particularly small town stories or suburban places like Haddonfield, but even his Haddonfield feels like small town America. That's not Hellraiser. The original story takes place in London. Frank Cotton is like, he's a globetrotter. I do kind of like the idea of making the dimension the Cenobites come from, like small town America, like it's Northern Ohio or something. It's, but it's even that I'm kind of joking. I would be interested in seeing it. It's just an odd fit for me all around. I think Brutner fits better. And I think it's the Nighthouse that actually convinced me he is a good fit. Hellraiser is about characters trying to reach out to the other side and find something more, trying to go beyond our realm to a different realm and find something that can comfort them or satisfy them in the reality that we live in. And this that's what the Nighthouse is doing with nothing. And that's what the Nighthouse is doing thematically. Uh, Frank also is all about, in Hellraiser, he's all about sensation and the quest for pleasure. Um, and I think I think that could fit with a lot of what he's doing with Bruckner and Ben Collins are doing in the night house. Also Hellraiser is a bit of a haunted house movie. It's not really a ghost story or anything like that, but in the movie, especially the house plays a pretty major role in the story and it feels like a character. So I think that fits in and the night house, night house does that really well. Um, also what I want out of it though, and this is both versions. It needs to be kind of, it needs to be sexy. It needs to have that element in it. Big time horror and big blockbuster movies in general have become remarkably sexless. Hellraiser is not that. It is overflowing with sex and sensuality. And I want 
either remake to recapture that. And I don't, and I don't know. You know we'll see. We'll see. I was going to say something and then I walked back because I remembered another one of his movies, uh, David Gordon Green's. I just, I'm hoping that that is an aspect that is pushed to the forefront because I think that's one of the aspects that works really well uh, about Clive Barker stories in general. Um, is the night house on the honor roll? I guess that's the question I should come to. No, it's not. I did enjoy my time with it. I just, I don't think it's going to make my top 10 at the end of the year. It, it didn't grab me in the second half like the first half did, but still very good. And I think, I think a lot of people will find a lot to like in this movie. All right, let's do Prisoners of the Ghostland next. A notorious criminal must break an evil curse in order to rescue an abducted girl who has mysteriously disappeared. Directed by Sion Sono, written by Aaron Hendry, Riza Sixo Safai, starring Nick Cage, Sofia Botella, and Nick Cassavetes, and also Bill Mosley. Uh, this is a, uh, I watched a trailer for this a few months back and saw the poster. This is a better trailer and poster than a movie, in my opinion. It's got a wacky concept. The director, Sion Sono, he's a Japanese director. He's kind of known for more out-there movies like this. His movies are known for their scenes of extreme sex and violence. And there's some of that here, but not a ton, honestly. I wish there was a bit more of, especially on the action front. I think the movie works best when it starts getting a little bit violent. It's a bit too tedious and dull for a movie like this, but... If you're looking for Wacky Cage, this might be for you because he's pretty wacky. And so he like rides a bike around with a basket on the front, for example. Bill Mosley is in this and he is also quite wacky. He says, uh, for example, he says stuff like testicles instead of testicles. It's it's a lot to take in. It's It, it wasn't my favorite. Let's talk about the year in Nick Cage, though. He's had a trio of movies, Willie's Wonderland, this one, and Pig. So that's kind of... Three different flavors of Cage, really. Willie's has that. Willie's Wonderland has that bizarre concept, but Cage plays it pretty straight. I think he's mostly silent in that movie. Pigs is more meditative and a reflective film, and this is kind of a big capital capital letters Cage comic book type movie. How does this year compare and rate with the past few years of Cage? I think that 2018 is probably the best recent Cage year. 2019 had Colorado Space, which was one of my favorite movies from that year. Um, I loved it. And maybe that was last year. I don't remember when it actually got released because of everything. Um, but he also had a lot of DTV looking stuff the last couple of years that I didn't watch. 2018, though, was a great Cage year and maybe one of the best since his prime. And it had many different flavors of Cage. You had, you had mom and dad which feature, feature kind of nomadic, crazy Nick Cage. And then you also had um, Mandy, and which is one of my favorite movies of the 2010s. And also his fantastic voice work in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is Spider-Man Noir. I think that year is the high watermark for the, for the Cage crew, as I like to call us. Get in the cage. This year's been pretty solid, though. I think he's had a very interesting recent career. And while I'm not crazy about this movie. I think it fits along nicely with what he's been attempting and some of the more recent work he's taken on. This was just prisoners of the ghost land was just a misfire for me. So is it on the honor roll? No, it is not. My heart can't beat unless you tell it to a fantastic title for a movie about two mysterious siblings that find themselves at odd at odds over care for their frail and sickly other bro younger brother directed by Jonathan Quartus written by Jonathan Quartus starring Patrick Fugit, Ing Ingrid Sophie Shram and Owen Campbell. This is one of those. Um, it's a very unconventional kind of quieter naturalist kind of vampire movie. 
Transfiguration from a couple years ago is what I thought of. A Girl Who Walks Home at Night is similar. The king of this type of movie is still Romero's Martin for me. This is well shot, well acted. I didn't I don't particularly love the script though. There there's slow burn and then there's slow burn and there's too slow burn. And this one, this one's that for me. I always say always be skeptical of anything over 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. This is this is what I live by. This is at like 96, 98%. I am I'm really skeptical of Rotten Tomato scores of horror movies especially. Not only because what's scary can be subjective, but because there are a lot of reviewers that aren't horror fans or aren't horror nerds and that's fine. But what I mean by that is there are probably reviewers, probably reviewers like that, like some horror movies, but aren't as well versed in the genre as your typical hardcore horror fans. So a lot of well-reviewed, well-reviewed high rated horror movies are the ones that might get called elevated horror or whatever bullshit term they throw at uh, horror movies they think are good. But all of this discussion is for a different day or a different movie. At least this is, this is indie horror where very little happens plot-wise. This is also a festival hit, I believe. And unfortunately, there isn't a ton going on underneath the surface, or at least I didn't find a lo- enough to chew on. Uh, full disclosure with this movie, I read an interview with the director while I had the movie paused. Um, and here was the question asked by the interviewer. It was, the vampire is positioned as weak, dependent on his older siblings. His vulnerability against also stems from economic and social needs. If genre cinema reflects the social angst of the time it's made, your film references the struggle to survive in a world with an expanding wealth gap. Is the film a reflection of the troubles of American society and the wider world? I've seen this movie, so that's why I'm kind of smiling at this. Uh, Here's the director's answer. I went more personal than social, trying to comment on the victims of society about the way that immigrants are treated. And yes, the difference of classes. This is a low wage family, and they're also living on the edge of society. They're also a white family preying on minorities. You don't want to root for them in doing that. But we as a society assume that these people will not be missed. Okay, this is all stuff that I don't necessarily disagree with in there, but none of this is really done in the movie. This is a very annoying interview, honestly, uh, because none of this happens in the movie. Uh, There is, correct me if I'm wrong, there's like one immigrant they kill in this movie and the rest are victims from, uh, they were white Americans just hanging around the town. Fringes of society, economically, these people live, these vampires live in a multi-bedroom house. She has a job. I don't even think he works. So she is paying the bills apparently with this job at the diner. They have electricity. They have running water. They have, they have a car that works. They have working appliances. They had a blender. Um, so essentially she, she can pay for all this with her job or they inherited money from their parents because there are three kids here. Um, so give me a break with this. I, I wonder if these, I wonder if some of these people, like if they've ever been to like the fringes of society. Um, I guess he wears, Patrick Fugit um, wears tidy whiteies a lot. There are plenty of shots of Patrick Fugit in white underwear. So if that's your thing, I guess. Um, I guess that the filmmakers, that tidy whiteies signify uh, you're, you're a poor uh, for the filmmakers of this movie. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't even know. I don't even know. I don't associate tidy whities with anything. I don't even, I don't know. Ridiculous. Ridiculous is what I'm saying. I couldn't concentrate on the movie after the video interview because I was too busy trying to prove the director wrong in his interview. Um, the strongest stuff, and not, I want to say this too real quick. Not every movie 
has to be sold or even made about the times we live in. And I'm honestly getting a little bit exhausted with filmmakers and marketers and studios trying to sell them that way. The strongest stuff in this movie is if you read it about a movie as a movie about hospice care, and he does touch on that a little bit in his interview as well, but they made sure to point out all the uh, important social stuff. Um, but the hospice care and kind of learning to let your loved ones go when it's their time. And that's a pretty universal thing. And it's one that um, it's the strongest stuff in the movie. And I wish there were more of it, to be quite honest with you. Uh, this is not on the honor roll. I didn't like it very much. Let's close this bad boy out with a little purge action. The forever purge. All the rules are broken as a sect of lawless marauders decides that the annual purge does not stop at daybreak and instead should never end. Yeah, ooh, you got a party. Directed by Everardo Gout, written by James DeMonico, as all of these movies are. Starring Anna de la Reguera, Tenek Huerta, and Josh Lucas. We are on the fifth purge movie now. What a strange trip this has been. I have not seen them all. I am, or I know I have seen them all, but I'm not a purge expert. My favorite one is one of the Grillo ones. So there you go. That's how much of a purge expert I am. I like one of the Grillo ones. I Frank Grillo ones. I think the first one. What's weird about the Forever Purge is it's probably too ambitious. This is a series that started out with too little ambition. As the first movie doesn't capitalize on the great premise at all, it's mostly just like a siege movie. This is probably near, the Forever Purge is probably near the top of the purges for me. It's solid. There's a great action scene near the end. Will Patton is in it. Always a plus. It has some things to say about order versus chaos and immigration. It has some very on-the-nose stuff to say about immigration, honestly, but whatever. It's in there. Um, for a big budget movie like this, I'm not going to I'm not gonna knock it. It's, it's pretty well paced. It's shot well. This series is starting to feel a bit familiar, though. James DeMonico has written all of these movies and the TV and the TV series that was on USA, I think for a season or two, a couple years ago. That's cool for consistency and kind of authorship of a franchise. I think it's neat. I don't think he's as successful as Mancini with the Chucky movies though. I really wish someone else would have taken a crack at this series as well, just to see what someone else could do with it. Cause it's an awesome premise. And I think, I think the popularity of these movies proves that a different perspective on the purge would be appreciated though. At this point, I do think this is the most hopeful of the purges in the end. This is a pretty cynical series, but this ends with it's these two groups coming together for a common goal. It doesn't end with it. I know spoilers there, but that's what the movie becomes about two, two different groups from different backgrounds that come together for a common goal. But I couldn't stop thinking about and asking myself, what kind of crimes would I commit? on purge night i'm not a big crime guy personally i don't commit a lot of crimes in fact i had to google crimes to commit so i could do this bit so that's how you know you're not a big crime guy when you have to uh google crimes uh non-violent crimes at that i wouldn't steal i wouldn't rape or murder obviously i have no interest in that i um like i don't think i would pee like i could pee in public i know that's a crime maybe i don't know i don't think i would want to do that either um i would speed i've sped before so maybe i would speed but so i live i live by uh um woodward avenue in detroit so it's a kind of a straight shot and you can speed on that if you want but i'm thinking that a lot of people would be thinking the same thing so maybe i wouldn't because that seems dangerous i don't want to do that i guess i would jaywalk I jaywalk all the time, I think, but I never really, what constitute jay, constitutes jaywalking? I think jaywalking, um, let me Google real quick. 
So jaywalking, because I'm never sure if it's just crossing at... Okay, if you're unfamiliar with the term, jaywalking is the act of crossing a street without using the designated crosswalk. While convenient, doing so can be hazardous. So yeah, I've jaywalked before. I would probably jaywalk again. I don't think I would break and enter because someone has to clean it up afterwards. I've seen people say they would like break into an ice cream parlor. I wouldn't do that. Um, I would loiter. I would. You know what? I wouldn't loiter. I wouldn't loiter. I wouldn't litter either. But I wouldn't loiter... Because there are going to be people out there on purge night committing murders and stealing. And if you're loitering, that means you're just kind of hanging around somewhere, especially like a business. No, I wouldn't loiter either. So there you go. On purge night, I would jaywalk and not worry about it at all. That's it. There you go. Is this on the honor roll? No, it's not. It's one of the better purge movies, but I wasn't crazy about it. Um, well, you know what? I shouldn't say that. It was, it was all right. I want to get out of here, though. So there you go. Last Night in Soho is the only one that made the honor roll. The Forever Purge is all right. Uh, Prisoner of the, Prisoners of the Ghostland and uh, the other one. Oh, my heart can't beat unless you tell it to. A lot of people liked it. I didn't. So maybe you'll like it. And The Night House, very good. Very good, but I don't see it making my top 10. I might do one more of these coming up on the end of the year. I'm um, enjoying doing these. Hopefully, those of you who are listening are enjoying listening to them. If you want to listen to them early or just any of our other awesome bonus stuff, or if you just want to chip in a buck um, and help us out with what we're doing at the Midwest Podnet with us and uh, Multimedia and the Midwest Game Nerds, check us out, patreon.com backslash Midwest Podnet. We've got a Christmas special coming up on Horror Movie Yearbook where we're going to be talking about Christmas Evil. The Game Nerds have been talking about the Game Awards. So there you go. Um, we're probably going to do something with the Film Nerds probably at the end of 2021. I'm seeing Spider-Man this weekend. I know a lot everybody, I think, is uh, everybody affiliated with the Film Nerds is seeing Spider-Man. So we're probably going to want to talk about that. Uh, but I won't make any promises there because I'm not the founder. But... Um, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you everybody for listening. I will see you next time.